Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, you're listening to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, 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 welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your host, Darren Fatman McDuffie, and this episode is being brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. Thank you for listening. For all those people out there who are downloading through iTunes, please leave a review for me. It actually helps me in iTunes to get the show noticed and for more people to discover the show, just like you discovered the show. But, um... Wanted to let you know I'm actually doing this interview from the phone. Normally I would connect through Skype, and then I have my uh, headset, and then I have a podcast mic that I use. But for some reason, Blog Talk has been having an issue with connecting to Skype, and hopefully they will be able to get that fixed here. I think uh, last Wednesday, if you tuned in last Wednesday when I had Tasha Lee on, we talked about healing fruit with healing diabetes with fruit, rather, got that wrong, twisted around there, but healing diabetes with fruit, and I ended up having to call in, and she was on a cell phone, I believe, because Skype wasn't working for her to call in, so um, if you were listening to that show, you know the many intricacies of dealing with electronics, but we're going to go ahead and go with it. Um, Tonight, we have another fabulous show for you. We'll be talking about cardiac health with Dr. Thomas Cowan, and really great to have this gentleman on because I heard him speak maybe about four years ago on another show, and I always mention uh, Sean Croxton's show. He's no longer doing that show now. It was called Underground Wellness, and I heard Dr. Cowan on that show and really had some questions of my own, and since I started my show, I'm kind of inviting guests on to talk about things that I really want to know more about, and one of the things that we'll be talking about tonight is blood pressure as well as cardiac uh, health, and there'll be some things that you may not know. I was listening to one of his uh, lectures on YouTube, and there were some things that really surprised me, and we're going to be talking about them a little bit tonight. So without further ado, let me just read his bio. Dr. Tom Cowan discovered the work of two men who would have the most influence on his career while teaching gardening as a Peace Coast volunteer in Swaziland, South Africa. hope I'm pronouncing that right. He read Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Weston Price, and a fellow volunteer explained the arcane principles of Rudolf Steiner's biodynamic agriculture. These events inspired him to pursue a medical degree, Tom graduated from Michigan State University College of Human Medicine in 1984. After his residency in family practice at Johnson City Hospital in Johnson City, New York, he set up an anthroposophical medical practice in Peterborough, New Hampshire. Dr. Carl relocated to San Francisco in 2003. He's the author of a book called The Fourfold Path to Healing, and that book is actually located on Amazon, and you can probably pick it up in the library as I did as well, and give it a whirl and uh, read it and a lot of great information. And so without further ado, Dr. Tom Cowan, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Thank you. 
And I cannot read on the air for some reason, but <laughs> we'll, we'll go with that. I can eat, read perfectly fine when I'm off air, but when I get on the air for some reason, I'm stumbling all over my words, but that's just my thing. But welcome to yeah. Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio, and uh, so glad to have you on. As I mentioned before, that um, I heard you maybe three or four years ago on the gentleman who was kind of my mentor and got me started with the show, and that was Sean Croxton, and he has the Underground Wellness, and I believe his old episodes are still available, so if you guys want to go and listen to that, you can, but um, I always give kudos to Sean for uh, giving me some inspiration to get my show started, but great to have you here uh, tonight with me. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, I wanted to kind of get into your background, Dr. Cowan. Um, I for all intents and purposes, you were not a doctor when you read Weston A. Price, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. Um, and you, after reading that book, decided to be a doctor. How did that book actually influence you? So I think the the real story is I was kind of, you might say, groomed or grew up kind of expecting that I would be a doctor and I basically didn't like it and just thought that doctors didn't know much which is partly because I thought most people in authority don't know much so that wasn't unusual Mm -hmm. so I tried to figure out what else I could do and I actually sort of developed a kind of love of gardening and joined the Peace Corps and went to Swaziland, South Africa, to teach gardening. And I, it just, with looking at, with reading uh, Steiner on, on anthroposophy and anthroposophical medicine and Price on nutrition, I could see clearly that the kind of medicine that I was really kind of almost loathing at that point, um, the reason I was loathing it was partly just my nature, but partly because... It, it, let's just say, in some ways, deserves to be, to be loathed. And I didn't know what I really meant by that, but I had a sense that there was another way. And so once I found out that, in fact, there was another way, it became easier for me to pursue that rather than pursue the way that I already had decided wasn't for me. And I like food and I like gardening, and so that was a pretty easy transition. Yeah. Um, You mentioned I was preparing for the show um, with the book and also trying to see what I could find on you and on what you were studying on YouTube, which is a a really good resource. I'm glad they invented YouTube. But you mentioned in one of your lectures Rudolf Steiner, and I never heard of this gentleman until you started talking about him. Explain a little bit about who he was, and uh, I'm pretty sure that what we'll be talking tonight, he about tonight, he actually was one of those people that influenced you. But explain a little bit about who, who he was, if you could. I mean, Rudolf Steiner was an Austrian by birth philosopher who was head of the Theosophical Society for a while, which most people don't know what that is, but it was sort of a spiritual esoteric group. He was a a Ph.D. scholar in the works of Goethe, and he, he had pretty startling insights into a lot of things. So he started... Uh, Waldorf schools, 
uh, he actually wrote the curriculum and gave the whole theory and philosophy. And, you know, 100 years later, Waldorf schools are the second largest private school movement in the world. He mm -hmm. gave the directions for biodynamic agriculture, which is sort of the, the rejuvenation, the restarting of the whole organic agriculture movement again in the world. And he gave indications and theory and practice for anthroposophical medicine. And there's now even public hospitals in Germany where all the doctors are trained in anthroposophical medicine. And the most successful natural cancer medicine in the last hundred years was directly out of Steiner. And the interesting thing about it is these, none of those three areas, agriculture, medicine, or, or pedagogy, school, mm -hmm. those, he had no training in any of those. Uh, I mean, that wasn't his profession. He just, <laughs> he just decided to tell people what he know, knew because they asked him. There's not too many people ever who have been in that category. And, you know, he did a lot of other things as well. He gave a blueprint for restructuring Europe after World War I, which, of course, was not taken up, and a whole different economic system, which was not taken up, and sculpture and water forms and a lot of things. But those are his three major fields of contribution, medicine, gardening, and school, all of which I've had a lot to do with through the years. Yeah. You mentioned a term called anthroposophical medicine. Explain that term in, I guess, layman's terms for the people out there who may not, who kind of get intimidated by big words. Uh, I mean, anthroposophical medicine, which, by the way, I even though I am actually board certified in anthroposophical medicine, I don't anymore call myself an anthroposophical doctor because I have my own strategy these days. But uh, I mean, anthroposophy was, means the wisdom of man, which is a pretty lofty title. And so he basically gave a, a kind of a blueprint for how the human being is constructed and how, therefore, to do medicine. And it's using a lot, you know, his whole line of natural medicines, which he formulated in a sense or have been formulated along his guidelines the most popular of which is mistletoe therapy for cancer, which, again, is the most widely used cancer medicine of any stripe actually in the world now. Um, but there's a whole lot of anthroposophical therapies and movement therapy and massage all coming out of his indications, but was basically a way of seeing the human being and seeing illness. And I could go into a long story about that, but I don't, I don't really want to, and I don't think that would serve your listeners so well right now. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted you to touch on, because in your lecture, and this kind of hit home for me, about how human beings evolve, because there are certain people who think that we started from maybe like a one-cell organism, and then we evolved into what you see today. But um, looking at one of your lectures on YouTube, I, I believe it was Steiner who came up with this whole thing of how human beings evolved. But can you touch on that a little bit? So, again, this comes from Steiner, whether uh, it's the God's honest truth or not, I, you know, I can't say. But it's an interesting uh -huh. way of looking at the world. 
Um, he, I guess the way to describe it is he would say, in the beginning, there was everything. And by everything, he meant the human being um, was there first, but not in any sort of form that we would say, oh, that's Cousin Joe. So there's this, in the beginning, there's this, this, this all-encompassing everything. Some people, I guess, would call that God. But Steiner said that's yes. a human being. Uh, over time, uh, the pieces of this, uh, imagine a big marble sculpt, you know, block of, a big marble block of, well, big block of marble. And then you chip off the different pieces of the marble. And let's say you chip off one piece and that falls outside of the original block, and that becomes zebras, and the next one becomes amoebas. Now, mind you, it's not like chip and then there, there's an intact zebra. And I, I can't even describe how this works, but somehow that became the impulse for the creation of all the different beings, minerals, everything that's not human being. So as as, and, of course, this evolution is, takes a really long time. Uh, but over time, things get chipped off, and then they become the other kingdoms of nature. And at the end of this long process, what's left is the form that we know of as the human being. Now, the relevance of that are two things. One is that, that in Steiner's medicine, he suggested that, for instance, when the, the heart of the human being was formed at the same time in our evolutionary past was the impetus. And, again, if it, for anybody listening to this, and it sounds pretty crazy, which it does, but don't think of this completely physical. When, we talk, when I say the impetus, I mean something very different than an actual, like, plant. So the, the impulse or the energy or the blueprint or the idea or I'm not sure what. But, I, but when this was chipped off, it became the strophanthus plant in nature. Or when the liver was formed or one aspect of the liver, that was the dandelion plant or milk thistle or chicory or any other plant that has an affinity for the liver. So when you're an anthroposophical doctor, you see the human being and you see which part of them is ailing. So you say, well, you had just had a heart attack, so it's your heart. And then you reunite that person with what you know is the plant that was essentially uh, cast off from the human being at, that has this sort of mirror image in the heart. Say, for instance, digitalis or strophanthus or from the mineral world, it would be gold, et cetera, et cetera. So when you're healing somebody, you're cre in the, the whole word healing, which means to create wholeness, you're in essentially uh, rejoining the person with that spiritual impulse that, was, that has to do with the whole creation of that plant and that organ of the human being. So anthroposophical medicine, you identify uh, your liver is ailing. Why? Because your fluids don't move properly or you're getting edema or you can't digest fats or something. So you need to reunite that person with 
the being of, of dandelion root or the being of milk thistle. And so you make a preparation from milk thistle, reunited it with the human being, and you create wholeness. The other thing I would yeah. point out about that, that theory of evolution is the greatest sculpture of all time undoubtedly is the Michelangelo sculpture of David. And he was asked at one point something like, how did you do that? And he said, well, I took this block of marble and David lived inside and I just chipped off the extraneous bits and there was David standing on his pedestal. So that's exactly what Rudolf Steiner said. I don't know if he stole it from Michelangelo, but they actually came to the same idea. Yeah. Now, it, this gentleman actually influenced you, and one of the things that kind of blew my mind when I was reading through the book, and then I was like, okay, well, book is great, but let me try to see you speaking in context about this, and you spoke in context about this on a lecture, um, that the heart, is not a pump. And it blew my mind because everything that I've been taught going through high school biology, even taking uh, science classes in uh, college, obviously we were taught that the heart is a pump. The heart pumps blood throughout the body, and that's what it does. But you came to look at the heart a little bit differently. So explain to the audience why the heart is not a pump. Okay, so again, I did originally come from Rudolf Steiner. He said there's three things that are important for the evolution of humanity. One is that people don't work for money, which, of course, we all do. And two is right. that there's no difference between sensory and motor neurons or nerves, which is the sort of the philosophical hallmark of neurology, which is a, a load of hooey, so to speak. Uh, and the third one is that the heart is not a pump. So mm -hmm. the, if you have a uh, – it takes a few minutes to explain this, so if you want me to, I'll just go into it. Is that all yeah, right? Yeah, go into it because there, there's a lot um, about the heart that people don't really know, and I think that now they're kind of correlating the heart, that the heart has its own uh, – what word am I looking for here? The heart has its own mind, so to speak. It was originally thought to be just this thing that sits in our chest and it pumps blood. But now what they're finding, the heart has its own mind. And it's a lot going on right now and a lot that we're discovering. So that's why I kind of wanted you to, to touch on it and explain what, you know, what you've learned. And because it, it builds on the basis of talking more about how to treat, you know, the heart, heart disease and heart uh, ailments. Right. So the first thing I would say is, is I, I, maybe not everybody, but basically everybody who has an alternative view of the heart says, yes, the heart is a pump, but it's also a spiritual organ or it has its own mind or it's a neuroendocrine organ or it's uh, whatever, this and that. And, and that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying the heart does not pump the blood. And it may be that there, it's those other things, the mind and neuroendocrine and all that stuff, too. But that's not my point, so just to be clear about that. Now, it's interesting that um, the first person to say that the heart is not a pump, but the heart is a pump, sorry, was a guy named William Harvey in 1628 who's considered the father of cardiology. 
up until that point, he said that the people, physicians, scientists, etc., thought there was some vital force that moved the blood. And Harvey said, no, that's wrong. It's the heart that pumps the blood. And in a sense, that started the whole mechanistic view of the human being, which is, by the way, mostly wrong. So let's look at this circulation as a whole for a minute. So we have this heart, and then out of the heart we have arteries where the so-called red blood or oxygenated blood travels through. So it's easier to, to draw it in a diagram, but if you can just picture this. So heart, and then emerge from the heart, you have large arteries, and then they go down to arterioles, which means smaller arteries, and then they go even smaller, and they form one-layer-thick capillaries, which is the layer where the blood uh, offloads its oxygen and food and picks up carbon dioxide and waste products. So, art, so heart, then arteries, then arterioles, then capillaries, and then it goes back to the heart through the so-called venules, which means small veins, and then larger veins like the inferior and superior vena cava, and then back to the heart. Now, the first thing to note about this system, so we're looking at the system as a whole, not just the heart, is if you actually measured the velocity or the speed of, that the blood moves at these various places, it's easy to see that the heart is moving fastest, sorry, the blood is moving fastest at the heart, at the inflow of the heart in the inferior and superior vena cava, and then it's moving also equally as fast as it exits the heart in the aortic arch and in the large arteries. So fastest at the heart, before and after is the same speed approximately. So it's fast going into the heart, fast going out of the heart, and then it goes slower and slower and slower, and at the level of the capillaries, it stops because it has to offload, you know, oxygen and food and pick up waste products and carbon dioxide. So it actually stops and does a little shimmy and then starts going again. Now, the way that is best for you to picture this is imagine you were on a bus, and the bus was going really fast, and then the bus, somebody took the engine out of the bus, which as it was going fast. I know that's hard to do, but just imagine they did. So then the, the bus starts slowing down, and then the bus comes to a bus stop, and it lets some people off and other people get on, right? So it stops. Mm -hmm. You with me? So then I'm it starts you. going again, and it goes back faster and faster back to the bus stop or the original place, going faster and faster and faster. Now, if you imagine that situation, uh, which is exactly what the situation with the circulation, fast at the heart, slow and stop at the capillaries, uh, where would you put the pump? Think about that for a minute. So maybe we don't want to spend a lot of time, but... I can tell you, if I, I am not getting on a bus that doesn't have an engine so that if it stops, it can get going again. Right. That's why I said it. you don't really In other words, if the, if the blood stops 
halfway through its path in the circulation, the pump must be at the capillaries, not the heart. Mm -hmm. In fact, why would you put a, a pump at the very point of the circulation where the blood is moving fastest? And not only that, but if the blood doesn't go faster as it exits the heart than when it enters the heart, what kind of a pump doesn't make the water or the blood or the liquid or the fluid or whatever it is move faster? That's what pumps do. Now, mm -hmm. also consider this. We have about enough capillaries to circle the earth three times. Or put it another way, we, if you laid out the capillaries side by side, it would cover three football fields. And then ask yourself this question. So we're talking about sticky fluid and stuff in the fluid that's approximately the same size as the tube, right? That's right. the red blood cells, the white blood cells. They're about the same size as the capillaries. So we have sticky fluid. Anybody can see that because if you get a cut and you, you feel your blood, it's sticky. So sticky fluid with stuff like beads in it, and you're going to push this fluid three times around the earth with a one-pound piece of muscle. Now, I don't know about you, but as I could sometimes say, if you believe that, I have a place, a swampland in Florida to sell you, because that's I'm in ridiculous. Florida, so <laughs> I'm actually in Florida, but I get what you're saying because it just seems like if the heart is a pump and it's that small and you have these capillaries and everything that you described, it's not going to get enough enough juice, so to speak, if I, if I can use that word, to be able to pump the blood throughout. So it doesn't make sense. There that is it, no way that can happen. Yeah. That is a fairy tale. Now let me tell you so another what, thing. Let, well, let me just do, say um, one more thing. So if you're go going to pump, ahead. if you're going to pump uh, fluid three times around the earth, and by the way, have it stop halfway and then start going again, which it does, and the pump mm -hmm. is at the beginning, so you're going to go around the earth, let's just say once to make it easier. So you're going to go around the earth pumping sticky fluid with beads in it through very small tubes, and you're going to stop halfway, but you're not going to put a pump halfway through because there's no pump in the capillaries there, we're told. How is that possible? And then if you look at the pump, so the pump, meaning the heart, has an outflow tube called the aortic arch. And it's an, yes. called an aortic arch because it's curved. So imagine this. You have a spigot on the outdoor, you know, spigot of your, of your house, right? So there's a water faucet thing. So you, you can turn the spigot on and the water comes out, turn it off, it stops. And then you put a flexible hose on this spigot in the form of an arch, like McDonald's arch, right? You with me? Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Okay, so now you turn the water off, and you can have this hose, and it can bend. And you put the water on really hard because, after all, you're going to pump around the world, so you better push pretty hard. 
What's going to happen to that flexible hose as you turn the water on harder and harder? It's going to get the water is actually going to go through there really fast, so it's going to kind of straighten that. If it's bent, it's going to kind of straighten it out. Exactly. That's what I get. Straighten out the hose, right? Yes. Everybody knows that. If you have an arch and you put a, a spigot on it and you turn it on real fast, it straightens the, 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 the tube. In fact, if you go to a cardiac catheterization and you look at the outflow, every time this heart, quote, pumps, the arch bends in. In other words, it makes even a bigger arch. It does the opposite of straightening, which <laughs> I, when I was in college, I had a, a job being an assistant at, the, at a cath lab where they do angiograms and catheterizations. My job was like shaving their groin and stuff. Uh, and so I would watch these catheterizations. And every time the guy's heart would pump with the dye in it, you would see the aortic arch bend in, make more of an arch. And at one point I said, hey, wait a minute. If the heart is pumping, how come it doesn't straighten the tube? And they said, I don't know. That's just the way it goes. <laughs> I said, what do you mean that's the way it goes? And they gave me a dirty look. If I didn't say, if I said any more, I would quickly have not have my job, which was helping me pay through college. So I I was at least smart enough to know I should shut up at that point. All right, the whole right. stuff doesn't make any sense. It's so the heart like, is the, the heart is the heart's function just it's kind of how would I describe this? Is it like maybe a, a mediator? It just kind of looks to see, you know, what's going on, or am I totally off um, by that? Since well, it's not what we think it is. It's not what we think it is, and you're totally off. But to describe that in detail is a little bit more complicated. And, by the mm-hmm. way, I just wrote a book, which is going to be published by Chelsea Green, called Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, which you can actually pre-order on Amazon, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, where I describe, you know, how it is that the blood actually circulates. That if, if it's not pumped by the blood, then what, how, why does the blood move? Or put it another way, what gets the blood to move? Because it's definitely not the heart. That's complete nonsense. Uh, so I describe what does get the, heart, the blood to move, and then I describe what happens to the blood in the heart. It's, it's very clear what happens. I don't know that we want to get into that right now because it's, you know. Yeah, it's I, don't, another... I don't want to blow, blow to mind the audience because we're probably, like, speaking over their head, but they may have to listen to this a couple of times. But I did want to get into um, just because you learn that the heart is a pump. You also learn that when someone has a heart attack, what happens is that they have a blockage. There's a blockage in the artery. Um, and something's going on, and that's what causes the heart attack. But now that we're discovering that the heart isn't actually a pump, that just throws that totally out of the window. So what does happen when someone has a a heart attack? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I know know there's a lot that goes with this, Dr. Cowan, but the audience needs to actually hear this because when I was researching 
this changed my whole outlook of how I look at things. And just as you were saying that you tend to question these things and people will throw it back at you and say, hey, you know what, just believe it. But why should I believe it when I can question it and find out for it, find out for myself? So let's get into this whole thing of what actually happens when, when there's a heart attack. Right. We can, we can do that. I, I, I only want to point out that, that we, did, we did leave off the part of what makes the blood move in the first place, which I, I, you know, I could say, well, just read my book and that, I describe it. So that's fine. I mean, I can leave that. But that yeah, might you know been... what, go ahead. Yeah, actually go ahead and, and do that, and then we'll, we'll get into the, to the heart attacks. Yeah, and, I mean, we don't have unlimited time here. So, um, so but I, I think it might be worthwhile spending a little time on, because it has to do with high blood pressure, and we may end up having to leave the heart attack part for some other time. But Yeah, because so I wanted to ask you about that as well, the blood pressure. Yeah, the first thing I would say is, is, so we know that the pump must, at the level of the capillary venual junction. In other words, if the bus stops and people get off and other people get on, you better have some kind of engine there to get it going again. Now, once you get the blood moving at the level of the capillaries, just by the fact that it goes into smaller and smaller, um, well, it goes into larger veins, but the whole surface area is smaller. In other words, all the blood is compressed into the big veins that, that bring the blood back to the heart, whereas the capillaries, it's like a wetland. So if you look at a river, the more you narrow down the river into a, a central channel, the faster the water goes, whereas mm-hmm. if you have just a, a lake where it's, the water will be still. So the capillaries is like a lake and then it gets narrower and narrower and therefore goes faster and faster. So the issue is what gets the blood started at the capillaries. That's the part that needs an engine. And in order to understand that, you actually have to understand water because water is a very special substance. And so the first thing about water is another thing we all learn in, in science like most things we learn in science, actually turn out to be not true. We learn there are three states of matter and only three states of matter. So there's solid, there's liquid, and there's gas. So if you have mercury, there's solid, solid mercury, there's liquid mercury, and there's gaseous or vapor, mercury vapor. And there's certain laws that they follow, like the the density of the solid is more dense than the liquid, and the density of the liquid is, more so, is, is greater than the gas, et cetera, et cetera. So basic rule of science, three states of matter, and that's it. Right? You with me? Yes, I'm with you. Okay, so let's go to water. So water has three states. It has ice, which is solid. It has liquid water, which is water. And it has gas, which is steam. Same as all the other things. Now, the first question to ask is, so we're told that in our cells we have 70% water, right? Everybody knows that. You can prove it with an X-ray, spectrophotometer, et cetera. 
70% of the contents of our cells water. So here's a question for you. Which of those three stage states is it in? The, the water, which state is it in? Yes. They say our 70% would... of our cells are water. So is it yeah. ice, is it water, or is it steam? I would say that it's water, liquid water. Ri liquid water. That's what everybody says. Yeah. Now, here's yeah. another question for you. If I took somebody's leg, and I used to be an ER doctor, so I know this pretty well, and I squished it in a big press, and I'm not talking about the blood here. I'm talking about the cells. So I got rid of the blood. So you would expect a big puddle of water on the floor next to the guy's leg. I right? sure would. Yes. Except that never happens because there is no water leaking out of a human being that anybody has ever seen. Mm -hmm. An analogy is you've heard of Jello, right? Yes. So which state is that in? That's more of a, a solid state. So it's ice. Yes. <laughs> Well, somewhere Jello is, but Jello is between that. I don't consider it ice, but it's more solid. Now I don't know. I get you can't Remember describe this, it. This is a multiple choice question. They, yeah. So I mean, you told you there's only three phases. It's definitely not right. ice. Right. And it's definitely not water, and it's definitely not steam. And so the problem is there is not three state states of matter. Seth? Yeah, because Jello is actually a gelatin. Yeah, it's, it's, it's gelatin. So you you know you need I need more than three states. But if I had, I was thinking about eating Jello. So, so it's like it's got to be solid for me to eat. But I see what you're saying. Right. It's in a. It's water has four phases, and by the way, only water. No other element. No other substance has more than three. Water has four. All of the water in our cells is in a gel phase. Now, the interesting thing about a gel is gels form by themselves by just contact with water and a hydrophilic, meaning water-loving, surface. So if you take a protein or a plastic called nation or any other hydrophilic surface and put it in a bucket of water, right next to that protein will form a very small layer of gel. It's some people call it a colloidal la layer or an exclusion zone or something, but it, it's an intermediate state between water and ice, and it's like a gel, like jello. In fact, that's what jello is, is proteins that are very hydrophilic and water, 97% water, but it doesn't leak because the proteins know how to convert bulk water or water water into this gel phase. Now, the important po point about this gel phase is when the gel phase forms, it creates a negative charge by, by essentially isolating free electrons in the gel. So, and you can prove this with pH meters and voltmeters, et cetera. So if you can picture this bucket of water uh, protein in it. Right next to the protein, there's a lay small layer of gel, and then the rest of it is just bulk water. 
and mm-hmm. that gel layer is negatively charged, and then therefore there's more positive charges in the bulk water. Now, if you do another experiment and take that protein or, or plastic, hydrophilic plastic, and roll it into a tube, you create a tube that has an inside layer of gel, which is negatively charged, and the positive ions will be squished into the bulk water in the middle of the tube. Mm-hmm. And as a result of squishing those positive ions into the middle of the tube, the positive ions repel each other and the water starts to flow. And it will flow continuously out the end of the tube as long as there's a protein or hydrophilic surface in water. You don't need any external inputs. You don't need anything. Just water by its very nature will flow because of this fourth state of matter that it can form, which is by definition negatively charged. So if you can imagine then taking this hydrophilic tube, that explains one of the other scientific dilemmas, which they say, you can read it in any botany textbook, there's a thing called the barometric pressure limit, which means that water can't flow higher than 33 feet in a tube before the weight of the water is too big and it pushes the water down, which means there's no trees higher than 33 feet because the sap can't go higher than that in the tree, which, of course, is nonsense because there's lots of trees that are even 300 feet. So how does it do that? It does that because the so-called xylem tubes, which are hydrophilic tubes, inside the trunk of the tree are highly hydrophilic tubes. They create this gel phase inside the tube, which pushes the positive ions into the water, which then repels each other and starts the sap or the water flowing in the tube. And that's exactly the same thing that happens in the capillaries. You have capillaries, which are hydrophilic tubes, they create a negative charge gel layer, which uh, pushes the positive ions in the middle. They naturally repel each other, and the water, i.e. the blood, starts to move. It has to move yeah, up I was, the vein. Yeah, I was just going to kind of bring it home for the audience, because if they weren't following us, I was just going to ask you, is that how the blood actually moves? So for the audience out there, this is how the blood actually ends up moving, which makes a lot of sense now that, you know, right. now that you're no explaining it. No external yeah. inputs are needed. No pump, no nothing. All it is is the interaction of water with tubes. Now, the importance of this is if you are not forming gel layers properly, if the water isn't flowing right, you create, you squeeze down the tubes in order to increase the, the flow. An analogy is if, you have a, if you're a child or usually a boy in fifth grade and you want to shoot a spitball, you get as small a caliber straw as you can get because you get more force behind the spitball, right? Right. You don't want a old tube because then you can't push very fast and you'll dribble it all over your, your lap. So mm-hmm. if you have poor flow because you're not uh, 
your capillaries are not making enough of this gel layer, your body will naturally clamp down on the caliber of the tubes with, to make the flow more robust, which is what we call high blood pressure, which means yes. high blood pressure is not a disease. It's a compensation for poor flow, which is really the revelation in all this, which is why conventional doctors have trouble treating anything, is because they're treating the compensation, not the disease. Mm -hmm. The obvious uh, solution to your body deciding to clamp down on the caliber of the vessels is not to relax the vessels because then you get no flow at all. That's what they do with treating with high blood pressure medicines. What you want to yes. do is stimulate more flow so you don't, your body doesn't have to clamp down on the blood vessels. That's a completely different way of looking at medicine. Yeah, and, it, and I know this sounds simplistic, but I, I'm sitting here wondering, we're talking about water, we're talking about uh, different things. Is, does a person who has high blood pressure, and again, this is very simplistic, would it be, I would say, would it be fair to say that that person does not have enough water in the body? Maybe they're dehydrated in some form or another to where they can't, the body needs more of that flow. It needs more water to be able to make that gel. Is that a fair assumption or am I, I told, I'm totally off because I'm just sitting here thinking as you're talking? Well, it, it could be that. Uh, usually right. it's not. I mean, okay. You don't have enough water. You're obviously it's like a river. If you don't, if you drain the water, you're going to have poor flow. It's very much you know, nature and doctors typically either forget this or don't never knew it. We are part of nature, and the same laws that govern us govern how fluids flow in nature. Of course. So if you drain the water out of a river, you get bad flow. Uh, sure. Uh, but that's not usually the reason. I mean, people could be dehydrated, and so they need to drink more water. But, but there's more to it than that is the question of what causes flow, and it's basically mm -hmm. the charge. Now, the other thing about this is if you think about the idea that we have a gel layer lining our blood vessels, and if, you, if you, this doesn't form properly, the blood vessels get exposed to the, whatever noxious element is in the blood, that's where you get plaque buildup. The plaque buildup is a failure of the protective gel layer. So we've gone 100 years, we can't figure out why people get plaque. That's why they get plaque, because their gel layer is no good or weak. They can't exclude things from... Uh, having a negative influence on their vessels, so they get inflammation and damage to the vessels. That's the explanation. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this really quick. Um, I did some exploring on uh, or some research on the Gerson therapy, and they were talking about positive and negative, which brings me back to what we were talking about earlier, the positive and negative and moving the blood flow. And the positive and negative, what they explain is potassium and sodium. Does that have anything to do with the flow of the potassium and sodium balance are off? 
good question in a way. And I also know the girl. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the, the problem, I mean, this gets into some more sophisticated stuff. The problem is Gerson was, was thinking that um, the reason for this was because you needed low sodium, high potassium to stimulate mm-hmm. the sodium-potassium pump to get the charge properly across the cell membrane. And a charged cell is a healthy cell, and a cell with no charge is a dead cell. Uh, To a certain extent, he was right. The problem is there is no sodium-potassium pump uh, of any consequence. I wouldn't say there's none at all. But mind you, the sodium-potassium pump, which is what Gerson was targeting, is one of the hallmarks and the, the greatest, discoveries of modern science and medicine. We use drugs to influence the sodium-potassium pump. It's the hallmark of conventional biochemistry, the cell membrane model of life. And it's mostly nonsense, <laughs> like most mm-hmm. things. And the, the, what really happens is when you, when, you ha- when you understand that the cells form gels, and that sodium and potassium influence the formation of gels in very complicated ways, which I can't get into right now, then you can have these phase shifts which, which are much more sophisticated, eloquent, and realistic model of how, how sodium and potassium influence the kind of things that, um, that Gerson was talking about. So in a sense, you're right. right. But it's unfortunately, like a lot of things, more complicated and less understood than even somebody, uh, you know, Gerson was a genius about food, but <laughs> got this yeah. wrong because he didn't understand yeah. uh, cell physiology. Yeah. Um, high blood pressure, you mentioned that something's wrong with the flow. How do we fix the flow? Is that a complicated answer? Is it something simple? Does it you have to do a more complete um I don't like to use the word diagnosis, but a complete uh once over of a, a patient, how how do you actually end up fixing that flow to be able to lower the blood pressure? So The easiest answer is if you look at this system of why does water move in a tube, it turns out if you put the the bucket in a a lead-encased box, the water stops moving. So it turns out there's three basic influences that charge up our tubes or any tubes. One is sunlight. The other is contact directly with the earth. And the third is direct contact with another human being, particularly through the palm of their hands. So what's really happening is people are, uh, are cut off from nature, and particularly the sun and the earth and other human beings, and that creates weakly charged tubes which flow improperly, which then they uh, have to compensate for by squeezing down on their tubes. Now, there's other more complicated parts of this, but, you know, it's basically contact with nature is how 
our tubes, our vessels get charged up, which create flow. There's also a healthy diet. There's movement, you know, exercise. There's uh, medicines that can stimulate flow. There's, so there's other more complicated things, but those are the basics. Yeah, because when you mention sunlight, I know people have to correlate everything with something, and immediately my mind said vitamin D. It might be something that's important for us, and I don't know how how true that is when it comes to blood pressure, but I know for people out there listening, we always tend to have to correlate different things to make them be logical in our minds. But just you said sunlight. I'm like, okay, well, vitamin D. I don't know how fair that is. It's not vitamin D, really. Uh, vitamin yeah, D is yeah. important and it may be relevant for some other things, but it's not the vitamin D that creates the flow. I can assure you of that. It's the sunlight. Yeah. The problem is people get way too, quote, you know, uh, picky-yune or material, you know. It, it's like Steiner said. We'd be better off with a macroscope than a microscope. People always want to say, oh, well, the sunlight, that's vitamin D. So you mean to say that the only influence of of the sun on a human being is vitamin D? I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Humans evolved through a complex interaction with sun and the earth. Yes. forget a lot of that and like I said our minds we always have to correlate it with something it has to make sense on some kind of level for us to be able to uh, think of things in in different terms Um, I've been bumping into a lot of people with low blood pressure a lot of people say that I have low blood pressure Um, is there something wrong with the flow in low blood pressure as well and I guess within Answer that, and then the the second part of that question is, what is actually normal blood pressure? Is my blood pressure normal for me and different for you? And how can medicine say, okay, it's 120 over 80, that's the perfect blood pressure, but my blood pressure might not ever be that, and I feel fine. So I, I guess that's the second part of the question. It's more complicated than that. It's not just 120 over 80, but... It, you know, it shouldn't be over 150 over 90-ish. That's probably too high for most people. But it right. does depend, and it's, you have to see it in context. It's, this is not just a number. So that 150 over 90 is actually the, uh, that's the range. That's kind of the maximum that is, is sort of acceptable, but you know, you, right. it depends on the situation. So that you can't really give a blanket thing for that. Yeah. So it's okay for us to have different blood pressure as long as it isn't over what you would consider that acceptable range. So if my blood pressure is 120 over 80 and someone else's is 130 over 80 or something, I'm just making up numbers. Then that's okay because I think. With a lot of people, if it isn't perfect, then they start to worry about it. But you may want to just worry about it if it goes over what you would consider that 150 or 90 range. Then you you think you 
you would think that you have a an issue, you have a problem that you need to, to see a specialist yeah. or consider lowering your, your blood that. pressure. We can go with that for now. And yeah. I, I'm going to have to wrap this up in about a minute, so we should try to wind down here. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to get you off here in um, in an hour. Normally I keep no one over an hour, and it's it's already almost four minutes till till that hour. But um, you have a, a book coming out, which I love to read and have you back on because I'm really intrigued by this because when anytime anyone shatters my beliefs, I know that that's for a reason, and I have to do some more research and, and get more into it. And I know that I'm not the only one who is did the research or who might be listening to this call and thinking that the heart is a pump. And now you've given me a whole different way of looking at it, which I thank you right. for. But but um, what is the name of your book again? You mentioned it earlier on, and uh, when does it when does it actually come out? Heart, uh-huh. Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. And published by Chelsea Green, and you can get it on Amazon. Great, great. And do you consult with patients or over Skype or anything yeah, like that, uh, Dr. Collins? Two websites. One is Fourfold Healing, F O U R F O L D H E A L I N G dot com, Fourfold Healing. And I have another website of a. Of vegetable product line that I've developed called Dr. Cowan's Garden. That's D-R-C-O-W-A-N-S-G-A-R-D-E-N.com, drcowansgarden.com. And uh, that's an exciting new venture we, uh, my family is doing to get more and variety of vegetables into the American diet. Great. Dr. Cowan, thank you for your time, and thanks for being on. It was an amazing show, one of those shows that I'm going to go away thinking for the next couple of days. So, okay, let me okay. put this in context. But, again, thank you so much for, for being on tonight. I, I enjoyed it. Okay, thank you. Take care of yourself. All right. Enjoy Bye-bye. your evening. Thanks. All right. All right. Guys, um, I don't think that was too highly scientific. You can follow that if you, uh, you know, listen to a call a couple of times and you'd be able to follow that because what it was for me is the fact that a lot of things that we think are going on with our hearts really may not be our hearts. It might have something to do with something entirely different. And now you know more about high blood pressure and what's actually going wrong and how you might be able to, to treat it. So, um, great show. I would. I, I remember when I started this, I would go and listen to shows two or three times over just to get more understanding of them. And if you are downloading this through iTunes or listening to it, you can do the same, and you you learn more and more, and you'll be able to put that into practice and go in. If you're going to see your doctor, you go in as an educated patient. That's always the best patient because you, more than anything, know what's best for you. So thanks for listening tonight. And Wednesday night we'll have Dr. Thaddeus Gala. I think that's how I pronounce the last name, Dr. Thaddeus Gala. And we'll be talking more about inflammation and disease. So that'll be same fat time, same fat channel, Wednesday. So join me Wednesday and we'll talk a, a little bit about inflammation and disease if you have someone who you would like to see on the show or if you have any feedback for me personally 
you can email me at perfectlyhealthyandtoneradio at gmail.com. Again, that's perfectlyhealthyandtoneradio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Peace and love. Good night.